Oh, hi. Welcome to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. This is where Louisa and Beverly bring you the experts, the stories, and the research impacting the cybersecurity profession today. Hi, I'm Louisa Vogel and Zhang. Hi, I'm Beverly Roche. Together, we are your co-hosts for the Cybersecurity Cafe. Louisa. Hey, Beverly. You're having a conversation today with David Lacey from ID Care. I am. I just recently read this fantastic article by Steve Wilson who said identity's dead. And that's really about the bigger Facebooks not really wanting to know who you are but what you're doing online, your attributes. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what David shares with us in relation to the human side Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited that Dave agreed to be on the show. I'm really looking forward to exploring with him what is the actual human impact of a data breach or a compromise of any sort, which could be a scam, you know, it could be a telephone scam. You know, there's all these different ways that we can get compromised, but what is the actual impact and how does that experience play out for somebody? And I think it's going to be a really interesting chat. Let's get on with it. Professor David Lacey, or hopefully I can call you Dave from now on, just wanted to welcome you to the Cybersecurity Cafe. Thank you so much for being part of our podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Beverly and I are really excited to be able to interview you today, um, specifically because you can talk in so much detail about the human impact. Firstly, I just wanted to do a quick summary of your bio. You're Managing Director and also Board Member at ID Care. You also chair uh, the cybersecurity department at the University of Sunshine Coast and you're also the director there for the University's Institute for Cyber Investigations and Forensics. You teach, you carry out research and you lead initiatives of national importance. So we are really excited to have you here today, Dave. I was hoping to start with a kind of high level question, which is about ID care and just to really understand, you know, what is ID care and why do you exist? Yeah, it's a great question. So ID care is a one stop shop for individuals across the community who need anonymous and free advice or behavioural support when they have to deal with identity or cyber or scam related activity. Um, Our clients received individual response plans and they have their own case manager to work through in really sharing knowledge about what the risk is and what are the specific things that they can think about doing to mitigate those risks and make the response journey as less painful as possible. So what are some of the sort of common reasons people will call ID care? Yeah, it's a a very broad church of reasons why people call ID care and it was a bit of a risk when we set up the organisation to not fully define for the market what it is that we did because we wanted a very organic base of consumers. Most people that engage ID care have responded to telephone scams. That's the principal channel through which people's identity is being compromised today. Others engage us because they've received a bill in the mail that of a service they never subscribe to and often that's an indicator that something's not quite right with their personal information. Others are involved in relationship scams or investment fraud or employment scams. 
it's a very, very diverse range of incidents that come through to us through what's impacting the community. And who are those people that are calling and where are they located? Is that a fairly broad spread around Australia? And I think you look after New Zealand as well, is that right? We do, yeah. So all of Australia and New Zealand uh, can access our services through a telephone support line. Um, I, I think it, it was probably year two of ID Care where we started to see uh, the clients be representative of the geographic distribution of the population. So in other words... Yeah, you know, we'd have more people call ID care from Sydney as we would from Melbourne, as we would from Brisbane and, and regional and remote parts of the country. Um, and that gives us some degree of confidence that what we're hearing on the phones and and understanding through that consumer journey is probably representative of what's going on across the country. And you would have some really unique insights around how consumers actually feel when their information is involved in data breach. You know, I think we often focus on the technical side of of cybersecurity and the impacts. But what about how those people feel um, about their data being utilised by criminals, for example? Yeah, it's it, the the emotional side is a is a big focus of ours. The consistent and primary need that we have across the community is firstly stripping it really right back. What is this thing that I'm dealing with? What does it really mean to me in terms of risk? What is it that I can do about addressing that risk? And what are the things that I need to change or look out for to make sure it doesn't happen again? And the whole service is built around providing the community member with answers to those questions. So we get strong positive feedback from the community where we're able to say, well, you know what, you're person number five in the last hour that's experienced exactly the same thing. So that says to that person, I'm not alone. Often emotionally they're feeling embarrassed because if most people to engage ID care uh, experience a telephone scam, they've often volunteered their own information to the scammer thinking they're talking to big business or government uh, or they've given remote access to their device. And so they don't, they don't, shouldn't, should never be told they're stupid. There is no relationship at all between people finding themselves involved in scams and intelligence. I can say that with absolute conviction after five years of um, immersing myself in this world, stupidity has nothing to do with it. Uh, we see all walks of life call into ID care from police, lawyers, doctors, teachers, students, unemployed, the whole community. And there's no relationship at all between what they find themselves involved with and, and their intelligence. Um, and they need to know that, you know, and they take solace in that and they, it's all about rebuilding trust at a time when loyalty's on the line with a lot of brands they engage with, uh, and that helps them understand what they're going through and what it means. And how do you think we're doing, I guess we're talking about the cybersecurity community here, how do you think we're doing in the way that we respond to data breaches, for example, and you know, are we doing? Are we communicating enough about those? Are we equipping our customers with the information they need to recover from those incidents? Yeah, I think we've got a bit of maturing to go. 
It's fair to say. I, I think when we look at a data breach or an incident, often ID care services will be called upon for a couple of reasons. One is the organisation concerned will want some type of independent expert view of whether or not the incident is likely to lead to serious harm to that person. Uh, and we look at that through multiple lens. So we look at it through not just what the incident was, whether it was malicious, accidental, containable. We look at the information attributes at risk. We look at whether in our call centre experience we've seen similar events with similar attributes and if so, what the risk is that's then presented to that person. And then most importantly at all, we look at what's the risk of the proposed response to the person because quite often organisations might offer the ham, cheese and tomato of response for the consumer, but it's a low-risk event and they'll think that's a really good thing. But the feedback we get from the community is, well, I might be distrusting of that message because they're saying it's low risk, but they're offering me all these services that would suggest that it's not. Um, we, we also get strong feedback from consumers about what the response measures are and how effective they've been and their view of those responses. So a good example might be uh, the breached organisations offered me credit monitoring. So that's where they might have engaged a credit bureau to monitor their credit file and alerts are pushed to that consumer to say there's been an inquiry. And that's a, that's a handy service. But the feedback we often get from consumers that are offered that service is, well, I've now experienced a credit application by name. Why didn't that prevent it? Because it's not designed to prevent it. You know, it's just pushing you an alert to say somebody's made an inquiry with one bureau and not all three. So, there's a bit more maturing in the market to go on multiple fronts. I think the response front's one that there's hopefully going to be new solutions being pushed out by industry and government and others that can um, better tackle those risks. I think in terms of understanding harm and the and the 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 likelihood of serious harm to that person, there's a bit more maturing to go. Um, how an organisation responds to an event, there's a lot of lessons to learn. Fridays are typically a bad day to notify <laughs> um, because one of the traps that we find with incident responders in organisations is that they think that their incident response is the only response to the event where the consumer or impacted person is going to go, hey, thanks for the notification, I'll take it from here. And they're going to want to do things and we know they do things. But a lot of those things they want to do, they can't do on weekends. So if something as simple as notifying on a Friday night, it's probably not a good thing to do if it can be helped. So um, that's that's sort of the view that we we have of it. Um, but but it's a very evolving space and we expect a lot more maturing to go. And in Australia, we had the changes to our Privacy Act uh, come into play last year, which required organisations to notify in the event of a data breach. And there's certain criteria they have to meet yep. to do that. Um, do you think that change in our law has helped move the needle for everyday Australians? Um, first part of the question. And then the second part is, you know, what more can be done? Do we need, you know, bigger fines or... Do we need something different other than legislation changes? Uh, it, it's difficult to, to know where the needle was at 
to know whether it's moved. I think um, there's some commentary that, that people will get data breach notification fatigue. We responded to over 300 data breaches since the legislation came into effect that impacted over 12 million Australians. And probably only one of those 332-odd events I can think of did we ever have consumers saying, oh, I'm getting a bit tired of these notices. And that, that was where the breach involved a third-party provider to over 200 brands, most of whom put out their own comms about the breach. So it wasn't because of the 330 other events it was just because of that one event. So we haven't seen notification fatigue be represented in the feedback of those that are receiving notices just yet. They still think, if anything, uh, a potential trap for incident responders to offer templated messaging where what we hear on the phones in terms of feedback of incident responders by the community is still a desire to have things be tailored in a way that makes them feel as though there's a genuine effort with the communication. So if we look at the breach notifications or a sample of those, you'll see you know, words to the effect of whilst there was unauthorised access, there's been no evidence detected of you know, theft or exfiltration or whatever the, the term is that might want to be used. And in that respect, we can play bingo, you know, notification bingo. Um, consumers want more personalised communications. Consumers want breached organisations to be in a position where if I am impacted by that and I call the organisation, I want them to be able to tell me what precise information of mine was breached. So there's some fundamentals. Red Cross did that really well. And they're often seen as a bit of a benchmark in this space. And... Do you think we can be doing more? <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> you know, you will see that, you know, through the calls that come in through your call centre, you know, what what more could we be doing? So there's that personalised, more tailored response. Is yeah. there anything else the broader community, including government, could be doing um, to better move the needle for everyday Australians? Yeah, look, I think, I, I think the everyday Australian uh, would expect that government and industry would have a, a good sense of what the response impact's going to be to that consumer. I think there's still a bit of a gap in in an organisation or in instant response team's view of the world. Most breaches are, have an online or cyber element that we've engaged with over the last 12 months with this legislation. Um, I think the history and the and the, the nature of our industry is such where we we default to a root cause analysis and we make sure technically things are understood and, and we give some certainty around what's occurred and who might have had access and when they had access and their IP address and all those things. I think um, what's still left to be done in a lot of cases that I've, I've seen and been involved with is not only is this an event that the individual should be notified about, but in doing so, what's what are the responses that they can take, which might be completely non-technical, and how am I going to communicate that to best effect? 
so there's a there's a bit more work to do on that front and and I think government and industry have a real opportunity to reflect upon what those journeys are like for that impacted person and how better they can make that process as painless as possible. Yeah. Um, in, in our call centre, it's changed a bit in five years, I think in a positive way. There's probably a group of organisations in both industry and government that's become this breakaway group where they're doing things a lot better there's still the majority that's got a bit of a way to go and the general attitude or perspective that we get on the phones from across Australia and New Zealand is that if you're not armed by the event, you almost certainly will be by the response. And that's more a reflection of the time, effort, frustration, bureaucracy, the emphasis on that impacted person to take the heavy lift on behalf of the system. And there's a great opportunity for innovators and entrepreneurs to think about how to better crack that one. I guess that leads nicely onto the global picture. You know, we've talked a lot about the the way that we respond here in Australia. What what does it look like globally and how do we compare? Um, there, was a, there was a good example of where we fit within a criminal context last year uh, and the back end of 2017, the US Federal Trade Commission and the US Department of Justice uh, had settled a civil matter with a money remitter, a global money remitter, uh, where a fine was paid in excess of 300 million US. And the decision that was made by that matter at the time was that that money would be repatriated to victims of scams across the world who had used that particular service to transfer money to the criminals. And I was in the US when that decision was made. I made representation to the US Federal Trade Commission and asked whether or not that was something open to Australians and New Zealanders. And they gave good assurance that that was the case. And as it turned out, that was the case. The challenge for the consumer was it was transactions that could date back 10 plus years and they had to show evidence that they used the particular service. Now, if, if anyone's like me, I'm lucky to have a receipt for a transaction I, I made yesterday, let alone 10 years ago. So we worked with Austrac, the Financial Intelligence Unit in Australia, to see whether or not they'd allow consumers access to their intelligence, which they'd gathered on international transfer funds. Uh, international fund transfer instructions, I should say. And for the first time, they agreed. They agreed to open the intelligence repository for the community. And that provided access for people to demonstrate that they had paid uh, through this uh, remitter funds to the, to the criminals. So the end result of that was there was an oversubscription across the world for, for claiming part of the 300 plus million US from consumers. But the important takeaway we got from that process was 98% of claimants came from one of five countries. And we were country number three in that list globally. So we are a destination of choice for criminals. Uh, but, but it's a shared uh, mantle with the US, Canada, New Zealand and the UK. So how do we compare globally? We compare in that cohort as a destination of choice for cyber criminals and scammers. 
we we still have great diversity within that cohort as to how our legislation compares, not just in terms of uh, criminal provisions, but in terms of rights, particularly around privacy and credit, which is very diverse. So in the US, I can remove my credit file indefinitely. Uh, we don't have that option in Australia and we don't have that option in New Zealand. So when you do those comparisons, you very quickly realise the value or, or the, the difference in value we place on personal information because that influences the ability for consumers to respond. Yeah. And while we're on the subject of personal information, I would love to get your take, your perspective on what are those low-risk and high-risk pieces of information because um, I feel like there's sometimes a little bit of miscommunication yeah. in that space and it would be great to get your insights yeah, on definitely. that. Look, anything, anything that resembles a passport number or driver license number is, is often a, a high-risk event. So criminals don't need an image of your license or passport. Uh, criminals just need your name, date of birth, maybe an address, but your license number. And, and often that's the keys to the kingdom to get all sorts of different products and services uh, across industry and, in, and, and also access to services from government. So, you know, we've, we've seen incidents unfold where there's been the compromise of a passport details and, and they'll say it's low risk. And, and then we'll demonstrate to them in the last month what's coming to ID care based on those attributes and what's been the consequential criminal exploitation of, of those details. So, you know, interestingly, the, what the community views as being high risk is, is often very different to that. So we'll have people ring ID care and say, somebody knows my name, date of birth and address. And, you know, there might be very good reasons why those particular attributes are of concern to them, particularly if they're survivors of family and domestic violence. But for those that may not be in the position, they may still be heightened by it. And then we'll talk to them about what we see of the, the misuse of those details and how often it presents in a very low or, or low-risk manner. And so we see kind of a knowledge gap there of not just the consumer but also incident response teams. You know, some incident response teams I've been lucky enough to sit within and you look at that human dynamic between a lawyer and a communications expert and the IT person and, you know, uh, all sorts of different disciplines in this epicentre of activity. And a, a common trap for incident responders is to think of any risks that may eventuate. But the, the trick is to know which ones are likely and it's very difficult for organisations to do that unless you're running an ID care call centre <laughs> and you're hearing it every day. And so I feel for those organisations because some of them are making decisions on how to respond to incidents on risks that just don't exist. Dave, do you think we, we, we make that link between, because you talked about one of the key reasons why people call ID care is because they may have been compromised via a telephone scam? Yeah. And I, I guess, do we, do you think we make enough of that link between the telephone and then the misuse of, you know, information online? You know, how do we 
better explain that link, I guess, to consumers? Yeah, I, I think often government and probably to a lesser extent industry don't make that link well. In fact, it's an almost offensive link because it's so obvious. In in time gone by where we've engaged in government on task forces and other things and we'll lobby in there and we'll talk to a bunch of uh, sizos and say your, your number one risk is telephone scams and they'll look at you as if you're talking a foreign language because it's not the telephone scam, it's the consequential impact of harvesting that data that then attacks them online. Uh, so I think there's a lot more that... that uh, we can do in educating our profession about what are the channels that these things can manifest in that are precursors to attacks and how best can we respond to those precursor um, events. I think on the consumer side, uh, the, the journey that we've had, it was a huge risk to set up ID Care and not define ID Care, even though the name lends some sort of perspective on what it is, we've made the very deliberate decision not to say, and we do X, Y, and Z, because we wanted to hear organically from the community, from those that thought they needed our service and why they needed our service. And so we we had emerge, I think 12% of people that engaged ID care from 2013-14, which is the very early days, were survivors of family and domestic violence. Completely didn't consider that cohort in the community. And the the absolute need and challenge they had around their identity and personal information and their safety. Um, we've then since seen this emergence of telephone scams. But every Australian would have, at some point in their lives now, received a telephone scam call. It's that prolific. You know, and and to draw that connection then into a cybersecurity context is the next sort of piece. You know, what happens then next is that online attack. And that's quite foreign to a lot of our our peers in industry. Um so you know, it's it's a it's a ever evolving feast, but it's a, it's a challenge even when you strip it back to those bare basics as to understand what that journey's like and where it might originate. And is the telephone scam something that's unique to Australia, or is this a global phenomenon? Uh, no, it's global. It, it's it's more it's more contained within that that sort of five five country community I mentioned earlier. So Australia the US, Canada, UK, New Zealand. Certainly happens in other countries, but not to the prevalence that we see here and, and in those countries. Um, you know, we know in our travels in talking with industry and government that there's some groups who who number over 5,000 people. I mean, it is it is it's an example of a transnational crime event that would hit every lounge room in the country, which is very unique. Uh, most Australians, fortunately, would have had never in, never had any engagement with a drug trafficker or a terrorist. But almost every Australian has had an engagement with a, a scam or a cyber criminal and a, and a fraudster. So transnational crime has worked out a way to make it 
a volume crime and and the orientation of law enforcement or government and even industry in disrupting that requires absolutely new thinking because how we've done things doesn't work. So, Dave, looking at the overall cybercrime ecosystem and, you know, we, we've heard it said that data is the new oil. Mm. Who do you think are the refineries of that data? Uh, well, I think there's a few of them. D- data is something about whether it be personal information or attributes around that consumer that has benefited the community enormously and in ways of which the community would probably never have visibility of. So it, it leads to better products and better services. It leads to strategically operational decisions on where to invest particular activities for organisations. So in some respects, organisations uh, are refiners of, of, of that information. Criminals have placed a value on that data also. And... You know, we have seen through our observation of, of darknet forums and other places online that Australian passports or driver licenses have a value for criminals. That value, interestingly, is, is coming down in price. So whether that's an indicator of an oversupply or, or, or what, I'm not sure. But, um, uh, personal information has an absolute criminal value. It's shared widely. It's, resold many times. We've had breaches. We've been engaged with 13 months ago that we're now seeing misuse about 14, 13 months later where incident response teams are packed up and gone home and, and are doing their day jobs. So, you know, the criminals are refined, ref- involved in the refinery process as well. And then you've got uh, markets emerging all the time of, of data aggregators, you know, legitimate business that are looking at ways to support business and government in their own decision-making. Um, and and they're, they're clearly a likely target also of, of breach events. And we've, we've seen that many times over the last 12 months. And Dave, what do you think the future holds? Um, I guess for, for ID care, it's clearly a service that is needed and is um, growing in need. Do you see things continuing to expand or do you think something's going to change and um, we'll be able to better equip everyday Australians to protect themselves online better. Yeah, I think one half of our organisation is all about having the conversation with that individual and maximising our attention with that person in ways of which we can help them better respond and change behaviours in a way that make them more resilient. So the other half of the organisation is about how do we shape the behaviour of a government agency that has access to 25 million people. And that, that the structure of our organisation, I think, is the right one leading into the future. It's a way of which our insights from that individual can help those organisations make better decisions in ways of which reduces harm and maximises participation online. You know, we, we're not an organisation that advocates for people to, you know, ditch their devices and not participate. We want people to benefit from an online environment because it's got enormous benefits. Uh, it keeps people engaged and connected. It does all the things that we'd hoped it would do. We just need to make sure that they're best equipped to do that in a way that's safe and prosperous. 
Um, so I think that structure and our approach to that uh, will continue. I think as an organisation, we're now in a very privileged position because we see how effective organisations are across the system and we see where there are opportunities for improvement. And so if we weren't playing a leadership role in bringing organisations that may otherwise have nothing in common together because we're seeing commonality, whether it be in their approach to the consumer or the consumer journey itself, um, I think we're doing the community a disservice. So the future for ID care is one where that part of our world grows because the community has put the faith in us that we can take their message and jump the wall that's big government, big business and have a conversation with the people that can influence change on their behalf. And that's going to be more and more important as we go on in this wonderful interconnected world of ours. So, Dave, I just I know we've got to end this interview now. We could have talked about so much and we could really listen to your insights all day. Um, but, yeah, on behalf of Beverly and myself, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. But also thank you to you and the ID care team for the incredible work that you do for the community. I think you really are the unsung heroes in, in the cybersecurity community. So thank you so much for everything you do. Um, just one last thing. Um, if people want to follow ID care or get involved, should they follow you on Twitter? Have you, would you encourage them to? Yeah, Facebook, um, yep. Twitter, uh, idcare.org is where you'll find all the relevant links. So, um, yeah, we encourage you to keep connected and thank you for your efforts. I think this is a fantastic initiative. Thanks, Dave. Um, and um, it is an amazing team that I work with and I'm very lucky to have them. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, Louisa. That conversation was so interesting. I didn't realise that Australia was the one in five top destination for cyber criminals. Just some of those insights that he shared with us I thought was just absolutely fascinating. What your thoughts? Yeah, I have to admit that I was really profoundly struck by those breadcrumbs that are left around by, you know, it might be a telephone scam initially leads to that bigger picture credential harvesting. And I just don't feel like we've made that link um, strongly enough up until now. So that was that was really interesting. I thought that was just a big insight for us professionally because we never really thought about telephone scams in that way. I think we just always thought they were kind of isolated by not necessarily cyber criminals but just opportunistic and... Yeah, for me, I agree. That was just amazing. Yeah, and I think the other thing that really struck me from that conversation, when Dave said there is absolutely no link between someone's intelligence and then them falling for a scam. And I think that was a really important point just to remind us, I guess, as an industry, you know, we've we've often called users stupid and there was a really great example where I think it was the Jimmy Kimmel, Kimmel show over in the US and they, you know, they went out on the streets and asked people for their password and they just gave their passwords away. 
And a few people have posted this on LinkedIn and the comments I saw underneath were quite, you know, oh, how stupid was that, that this woman gave away her password. And really the way we should look at that is that we have failed as an industry if we haven't enabled people to understand the value of their password. Yep. We've got a long way to go around helping people understand the what's in it for them. And when they get that, they're absolutely on board. But passwords are simply the hardest thing for our profession and for individuals, anybody engaging in the digital world. Yeah, agreed. And I and I think some of this ties back to that conversation we mm. had with Blair around how you really influence people to take on your beliefs as your as their own. Um so yeah, you're right. We've got a long way to go, but thankfully we've got some great people like Blair in the industry that are leading us. Well, that's a wrap. That's our second podcast. Fantastic. Look forward to the next one. Yeah, we're having way too much fun. Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Cybersecurity Cafe podcast. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes. And for more information, visit cybersecuritycafe.com.au and find us on Twitter at CyberSEC Cafe.